Please pray with me. Father, as we consider your names, the many names that you reveal yourself as throughout the Bible, we are grateful for each and every implication of those names. Lord, that you are a mighty and great God, that you are generous in your ways, that you're saving, that you're consistent, and on and on and on down the line, we worship you. God, continue to do your good work among us today, we ask, as we turn our attention to your scripture. Help us to think clearly. Help us to engage our thoughts and our wills. And Lord, be glorified in us as we do, in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you think of when you hear the word devotion? Some of us have a positive connotation when we hear about devotion, of commitment, of resolve. Even maybe on Mother's Day we think about our mothers and the type of devotion they've displayed to us. Some of us hear the word devotion and we think of something much more wet or sappy. I honestly think of those sappy movies that my my wife likes to watch. When I think of devotion, one of those movies that I'm probably compelled to watch on a day like Mother's Day, or maybe one or two other times a year. But to be devoted to something simply means to give yourself to something or to give yourself to someone. And there are a lot of things that we give in this world. But to give yourself has the implication of giving your thoughts your efforts, your resources, your emotions, to give yourself to something. There's nothing higher that you can give. Professional athletes are devoted to their craft. They train, and their training dictates how they spend their time, how much hours or how many hours a day they spend in the gym, what kind of food that they eat, even the recreational activities that they do or don't do. You don't see a lot of professional swimmers engaging in snow skiing because the risk for injury is way too high. They're devoted to one thing. Artists are devoted to their trade. Yes, they love to paint, but more than that, They spend hour after hour in solitude because they want to get better. They want to be the best possible painter they can be. They're devoted. And to devote yourself to something means to give yourself to something or to give yourself to someone. And even though there are a lot of things that are vying for your devotion in this life, More and more what we're seeing culturally is that people are becoming, generally speaking, people are becoming increasingly devoted to one thing, and that is themselves. Today, in our scripture, we see an incredible act of love and devotion. So I want to ask you to grab your Bible with me and open to the book of John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is found on page 898 of that pew Bible. If you open it down the middle, take a right, keep scrolling until you get there. This story is a story of love and devotion and generosity toward Jesus. But more than that, more than just a single act of devotion that we're going to read about, this act of devotion emerges from a pattern of growing devotion that this woman Mary has 
in her relationship with Jesus. John chapter 11, starting at verse 55, sort of sets the context for the story. It says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, they should let them know that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of this perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. There are two main characters in this event, and they provide a sharp contrast in their approach and in their relationship with Jesus. You see Mary, who progresses in her devotion, and it's displayed in this beautiful act. And you see Judas, who regresses. And when you look at the story of Mary's life and, and Judas's life, if you take this one instance and you back the lens out four or five steps, you can really begin to see how this progression and regression start. Consider the progression with me. The first time that we see Mary in the New Testament is found in Luke chapter 10. And Mary and Martha, you remember the story, are sitting with Jesus. Martha is serving him, and she's busy in the kitchen getting everything ready just right for him. And her act of love and, and commitment to him was one in which she wanted to be hospitable. She wanted to serve him. And all the while, Mary very simply sat there at his feet and listened to his teaching. Her journey of devotion began with the simple act of listening to his teaching. And we see this in Luke 10, 39. And it points us to a simple but important truth, that a growing relationship with God starts in this way. It starts in the simple act of sitting and listening to the teaching of God. And it sounds so simple that it's almost silly in its nature. And yet God uses his word he uses his scripture as we read it to shape our thoughts and our will and our desires. Mary found this to be true. And along with her sister Martha, they hosted him. But she simply wanted to get to know him. 
And so she sat at his feet and listened. The second part of her progression you can see in John chapter 11. We talked about this just a few weeks ago. John 11, verse 32, displays Mary's frustration with Jesus, but this progression happens when she's a witness to his work. Jesus waited until Lazarus, Mary's brother, had died to come and visit. And the story unfolds that he comes. We know why he waited. He came so he could display his resurrection power to all who would witness it. And yet, Mary and Martha in the moment were undoubtedly confused and angry and saddened at Jesus' lack of presence. This expression reached its peak. When Jesus enters the village, Martha rushes out to meet him and to speak with him. And Mary stays in the house. Jesus enters the village and she stays in the house. Why? Well, almost certainly because of her anger, because of her sadness, because of her confusion. She felt let down by the Son of God. And this was verbalized when she finally came out to see him. And as they stand by the grave of her brother Lazarus, she cries out to him, If only you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Little did she know what she was about to witness. As Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. But the sequence of events teaches us something. We grow in our relationship with God as we witness his work in our lives and in the lives of those around us. You know this to be true. If you have any friends at all who are Christians, you see how they're different now than they were two years ago or three years ago or ten years ago. When you look in the mirror, you say, man, I can't even believe the type of person I am now. I'm so different than I used to be. This is the work of God in your life. But even in that work, there are moments of confusion, of struggle, of difficulty, just like Mary experienced. And in our humanity, we tend to disengage. We tend to stay in the house when our feelings and perspectives become narrowed simply to our personal experience, when we forget that God is actually in control, that he's managing history to its appointed end. We, like Mary, very often just take a step back and say, I'm going to set this one out for a while. Growth in the Christian life is not strictly a linear process. I want it to be. (laughs) But Growth in the Christian life is very often two steps forward and one step backward, isn't it? Growth in the Christian life is not a direct path from A to B. Sometimes it's the roundabout way that we take that God actually uses and works in us to grow us. Now, you've often heard the expression, I'm sure, the analogy of God pruning us like he prunes the plants, like we prune plants. This past Friday, I spent uh, much of my day off out in the yard with my hedge trimmer. And this is, every time I do this, it strikes, it rings a chord as true in so many ways as I look at the plants and we're sort of getting our house and our yard in order after we've lived here now. This is our first going into summer season. And so there's errant growth in some of these hedges and some of these bushes. And every year, as you know, 
some errant growth is different than other errant growth and needs to be cut back. And I went to the evergreen hedge and I trimmed that and then I went to the boxwoods and I trimmed those and then I went to that one plant that I don't even know the name of and I trimmed that and then I went to the burning bush, which are pretty cool by the way, and I trimmed those. And each and every one needed specific attention. None of them were uniform completely. That is very much like the way that God grows us. No two of us are alike. And we don't grow in relationship with God in simple linear progression. He prunes us along the way. And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes we witness his work and we say, that is wonderful and I can't wait to be a part of it. And what are you going to do next? And other times we say, what was that? I didn't like that. That doesn't line up with the way I think things should go. But what we do in that place of struggle is very important, and Mary demonstrates that. Because that, too, is part of our growth. And so you think of this woman who gets to know Jesus as she sits at his feet and listens. As she witnesses his work, sometimes up close and sometimes from a distance, as she struggles along the way. And now we get to this place where there's immense persecution upon him, there's threat of death, and they host him for a dinner, and she displays this incredible act of devotion. What we see here is pure devotion. I mean, smell it with me. The room filled with the fragrance of the perfume, it says in verse 3. See it. The act of a woman wiping the feet, the dirty feet of Jesus with her hair. Feel the tension and then the softening of that room as the Son of God is now given glory among these small groups of people in the days just leading up to his death. And notice the sharp contrast between Mary, who's growing in her devotion to Jesus, and Judas, who is waning in his. And we see a few key elements here of what devotion for any of us looks like. Consider them with me. We see that in this act of devotion, there was an element of personal sacrifice. And this is certainly in contrast to a self-serving nature. I mean, part of giving yourself to something or giving yourself to someone is necessarily personal sacrifice, isn't it? Displayed here, Mary buys this pure, this bottle of pure nard ointment. It's this expensive Indian fragrance. The planning, the purchasing, the pouring are all representative of her sacrifice in this small group of people. Personal sacrifice is an important part of devotion for the athlete, for the artist, for the parent, for the Christian. It's not surprising then when we see people 
And we even see ourselves when we're captured by the vision of who God is, when we catch a glimpse of God's glory, when we begin to experience his loving kindness toward us, when we sense the gravity of who God is, then people seemingly are willing to sacrifice anything and everything in devotion to him. It's that type of devotion that caused a brilliant young man named Albert Schweitzer to devote his entire life to a completely isolated people group in Congo, French Equatorial Africa, simply for the sake of the Lord and for the sake of these people. Now, some of you know who Schweitzer is or maybe have heard a little bit about his story. He grew up in France, in that section of France that was controlled by Germany in the 1800s. He was exceptionally gifted in many areas. As a young man, he received his doctorate of philosophy in 1899, and he went on to become a young professor at the University of Strasbourg. While writing theology books, he decided to also pursue his musical career, where he became a world-renowned concert organist. He wrote biographies of Bach in French and in German, and as well, wrote a book on how to build organs. That's some good bedtime reading. In 1905, he learned of the need for medical missionaries in West Africa. And with a variety of options for life at his fingertips, I mean, he was brilliant. He obviously could have done almost anything. He decided to go to medical school and train to be a doctor. In 1914, he and his family moved to the Congo, where they founded a hospital. And except for about seven years of his adult life, where they were out of the country for different reasons, he and his family spent the rest of his life in West Africa, developing a hospital. He still played music. He still wrote books. He built 70 buildings in the hospital that served over 500 people at one time. Now why, why would he sacrifice the comfort of Europe in the early 1900s for the unknown of West Africa? Why would he sacrifice his growing fame and career success to go to a desolate place? Why would he sacrifice tremendous earning potential to live off the meager support that he could garner for this mission? And the answer is devotion. He saw who God was, and he could not do anything but give his life to serve him. And it's this sense of devotion to the Lord Jesus that calls exceptionally competent people to the seemingly fool's errand of gospel work. It's this sense of devotion that causes the rich to give millions of dollars to the Lord, even though their friends scoff at them, and the poor to give what they have in service of him. It's this sense of devotion that causes a single woman in Palestine to spend what is essentially her life savings on a bottle of perfume to wash the feet of her Savior. Part of progressing 
in devotion is self-sacrifice. We see another part of this devotion is expressed in simple humility. And that's certainly in contrast to the disgust that Judas displays, isn't it? Devotion and humility are related because not only did Mary take a risk in doing this, but her risk, I mean, it was unorthodox for a woman to be at the dinner table, period. They were supposed to be in the background, not take center stage. She comes in, she takes center stage in this one act of worship, and she pours the perfume on her feet, but then she does so in this way that's incredibly humble. She doesn't anoint his head like prophets anoint kings. She anoints his feet. (laughs) The gross part of his body, and then she wipes it with her hair. Humility is related to devotion in the very simple reality that you will never understand who God is. And you'll never understand the gospel of grace that he offers you until you exercise at least, at least an ounce of humility. That he knows something that you don't. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And when we chiefly care about what I think and what I know and how I look and what I want, then progress in devotion will be limited, if not completely impossible. Because at that point, we are really only devoted to ourselves. But Mary displays in this beautiful, risky, simple act type of humility that is becoming of all of those who would follow Jesus. And so, notice the contrast with me. Mary and Judas start out in the same place. They both start out listening to Jesus. They move to the same place. They both begin to see him at work as they're hearing his teaching and certainly struggling along the way. But somewhere in here, their paths begin to part. And we see in this instance that Mary exercises wonderful self-sacrificial behavior while Judas, in the background with his snideful remarks, has self-serving behavior. He's taking money out of the common pool. We see that Mary exercises humility before him. We see that Judas is expressing disgust and even doubt. We see that Mary ultimately commits herself in devotion and worship to him, and we see that Judas ultimately commits himself only to himself and betrays him. So here's the main idea. When we look at this one instance of devotion and the progression of these people's lives, we see very clearly true disciples progress in devotion to Jesus. False disciples regress. True disciples progress in their devotion to Jesus. And false disciples regress in their apparent devotion to him. And so the question for us then is, are we progressing? I wonder how you'd answer that for your own life. How can you tell? I mean, to devote 
yourself to something is to give yourself to it. And there are many ways in which we could talk about growth and giving ourselves to things or being devoted to the Lord today. But let me just give you a couple to chew on this week. Let me give you three simple reminders. The first one is this, is that we devote ourselves to him because he first devoted himself to us. This is one of the great realities of the gospel, isn't it? The good news is that God so loved us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He does not simply expect us then to live in indifference toward him. He wants you. He wanted you so much he paid everything to get you. He wants all of you. And he calls us to himself. In response, we devote ourselves, we give ourselves to him because of his great love for us. That's the first reminder. The second one is this. Is as a Christian, your devotion to Christ needs to find growing priority in your life. And eventually it reaches the highest priority of your life. Now I know that we're all on sort of different paths on, on our Christian maturity with the Lord, our spiritual journey as some people call it. And that along the way we have different points of struggle and allegiance and even devotion. I mean, for Christians, the desire to be a devoted husband or wife is a common desire. And this is a really good thing. To give ourselves to and for our spouse is healthy. But this is only truly healthy when this type of devotion is subservient to a greater devotion, the devotion to God himself. And they're not mutually exclusive. You can be devoted to different things, but it just depends upon where they rank on your priority list. When we devote ourselves to God, then we can actually become more devoted husbands and wives. You place your spouse in the appropriate position in your life. As parents, many of us have bought into this cultural idea that we need to be devoted to our children, and we want to do that. We want to give ourselves to and for them. But to be, the cultural idea is that to be devoted to them, that means we have to find every possible opportunity for them to find themselves or the, give them every possible opportunity to succeed in life. And they do this through a variety of activities. And as a result, we have this growing trend in which we literally give ourselves or become enslaved to, willfully, an aggressive youth sports schedule, a musical instrument on top of that, a drama to go with it, and a variety of other things. And these things are all good when they're placed in their proper priority. But the pull that we have, the tension that we have, is that when we give ourselves to all of these things, this results in our lives being chaotic. And we run from practice to game and game to performance day in and day out. The cost is high as the semblance of family life around the dinner table begins to change and to wane and meaningful conversation with our kids. I mean, real meaningful conversation dissipates and actually begin to go away altogether. And then we begin to realize, well, we're not actually devoted to them. We're not giving ourselves to them. 
we're giving ourselves to the program, to this idol of cultural activity. And the list goes on. I mean, I could sort of pick and poke holes for a while. What does it mean to be devoted to work? What does it mean to be devoted to our recreation that some of us want to be devoted to? And on down the line. But the point is this, that being devoted to Christ should be ever-growing in its priority in your life. And sooner or later, if you're truly growing as a disciple, he becomes the most important thing in your life. And all other areas of devotion are put in their place behind him. And so practically, this begins to dictate how our marriages work. (laughs) This begins to inform the decisions that we have about the types of activities our kids are involved in. My devotion to Jesus even begins to inform when and how I take vacation and do other recreational things. Because I've given myself, all of me, in that way to God. Number three, one of the ways that we express devotion, a reminder of this for us, and we talk about this a fair amount here at Old North, we express our devotion to God by being with God's people. There's something unique about the relationships that you have that form among the people of God. They're not like other friendships that we have. And your presence in those relationships is so valuable to you and to the people around you. And God designed it that way. The scriptures talk a lot about that, about what it means to love one another in that type of dynamic. As an extension, of course, your presence in worship with them, with all of us on Sundays, is important. Even when the rhythm of life changes in times like the summer months, and forging real friendships and real relationships and care and support for other Christians is based on something that's beyond our own desires. It's an indication and a true progress in our devotion. Because true disciples progress in their devotion. False disciples regress. True disciples progress in their devotion. And we could offer probably many more ways in which devotion to Jesus could be displayed. But let me close with a warning and encouragement. Because I fear that some of us really just don't ever want to grow up, spiritually speaking. comfortable being a teenager for a long time. And my encouragement to you is to keep growing. Like Peter Pan, many of us have fears and reservations about growing up. And fortunately, fortunately, many of us get over it. But, you know, there's a bizarre and even tragic exception known as, and I'm going to try to say it right, geriscophobia which is the fear of growing up. I just learned about this this last week. A recent article in Case Reports in Psychiatry describes how once a 14-year-old boy tried very hard not to grow up. Two psychiatrist authors write, the boy does not eat much, 
Because according to his own research, food contains nutrients needed for physical development. In addition, he adopted a stooped posture to try to hide his height and begin to distort his voice using lower volume and higher pitch than usual. And if people tell him that he is taller or older, he becomes extremely upset and he cries. Due to the restriction in food intake, he has weight loss of more than 12 kilograms, and he's currently in the 25th percentile. After treatment, the two doctors reported that the boy had improved, but they also added that the patient continues to express a fear of commitment and responsibilities that he feels will be required of him in adult life. Devotion. Is to give yourself to something or to someone. And part of growing up as a Christian is coming to the understanding that God wants all of you. And so don't be afraid to grow up into Him spiritually. There's nothing more rewarding than knowing Him, experiencing Him, and committing yourself to Him in this type of way. And Mary, anointing Jesus, shows us just that. The true disciples progress in their devotion. May it be said of you and me, may it be a marker of our church family, that we don't stay in spiritual adolescence forever, <laughs> that we continue to grow in this sense of devotion to Him. Let me pray for you as we move toward the conclusion of our service. Father, As we see Jesus glorified in this physical sense, as we imagine the room smelling with this fragrance of offering to him, as it is contrasted with the snide remarks of Judas, it is our prayer, Father, that you would be continuing to pull us along in this type of progression in our devotion. Lord, help us to figure out what that means for each one of our lives as it looks a little bit differently for each of us. Help us to analyze the ways in which we give ourselves to you and the ways in which we hold back from you. Lord, be pleased with a people who grow in this way, we ask. And we ask it for the sake of your glory. Amen.